everyone. Welcome back to Strip by Sia, your podcast for strippers, sex workers, and all the fancy naked people in between. I am your host, Steph Sia, formerly known as Kim Chi on the stage, digital content creator, all around the weird person I like to talk, and this is why I have a podcast, but I am not very good at speaking by myself, so that's why I have a guest on every single week. And we pretty much dive into all aspects of sex work. And this week, I'm so excited to finally, finally, finally get this person on to the show. I invited fellow dancer Lynx Chase onto the show today to speak about her indigenous background, how that affects her sexuality, her sex work, kink, responsible dom, Everything like there's so much to unpack here, really. I don't even really know where to get started, but Lynx, are you there? Can... <laughs> I am here, yes. Yay. Here and happy to be here. Yay, I've been chasing you for so long. <laughs> yes. You've been chasing Lynx Chase. <laughs> oh my god, I didn't even realize I did that. That was great. That was perfect. I am very, very thrilled to have you on. As I said, I have been trying to get you on since season one, but you know what? You're finally here. We've made it. We're in the midst of a pandemic. We're going to like shoot the shit and talk about all of the things today. Um, (laughs) I feel like I butchered your intro. Do you want to give yourself a better intro in terms of who you are, what you do in your own words and on your own terms? Sure, yeah. Well, my name is Lynx Chase. Um, (laughs) I've been a stripper for about eight years now, and within those eight years have uh, dabbled into other forms of sex work, like being a dominatrix. Um, That's been more of a side gig for me. It's not like, yeah, stripping was definitely my more of a full-time thing for me. I'm also a burlesque dancer. I started off like in performance arts, uh, primarily doing aerial arts. Um, So I would be, you know, contracted at different festivals to perform, either doing aerial hoop or like dance and other things. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I I kind of started getting into burlesque more after stripping, which is kind of the other way. Like, you know, because I know a fair bit of burlesque dancers that have gotten into working and dancing in clubs, but only after doing burlesque. So I'm kind of like the other way around. Yeah, I am a mixed ancestry, Lithuanian, French, Cree Métis. Um, wow. I'm born and raised in Montreal and <laughs> also an OnlyFans content creator. <laughs> um, I'm kinky as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> we like kinky people. This is why you're here. <laughs> yes. We're going to speak about myself. all the kinks. <laughs> That's totally okay. <laughs> Safe space. Yes. No shame. <laughs> well, that's a lot there. So, oh gosh, I, I don't even know where to start. Did you want to start um, in terms of your roots in Montreal, how you got started with stripping, what led you to that? And yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, definitely. We it's can a totally good story. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah, like I said, I'm born and raised in Montreal. I've always felt like you know, since I was really young, I've always felt like a deep fascination for like sexiness and mm. sexuality and just like everything that falls under um, that umbrella term, I guess. And right. yeah, like I remember seeing, you know, one example um, 
that like you know seeing like the Chicago movie or any kind of oh, yeah. movies and seeing the showgirls and all their big fancy costumes yeah and I remember when I was a kid I was like I want to do that when <laughs> I grew up like that's the shit I want to get into and I didn't really know how I would get into it but I just I knew I had this like deep sense of yearning to get into that world of like being a fancy naked lady yeah <laughs> um, so I got into stripping and sex work um pretty much when I was I think I was 18 or 19 okay um actually no I was 19 I was bartending when I was 18 <laughs> <laughs> like wait a minute <laughs> um, yeah like and you know this is back in the when Backpage was still a thing. Yes, when that was still <laughs> um, around. Rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, Craigslist, too. Yes. Whatever the name of that category um, like of Craigslist that they had the... The like, sex worker ads. Yeah, and they, they, like, removed it right when FOSTA yes. and SESTA, Sesta came, came to um, legislature in the States, and that yes. affected, yeah, oh, that's a whole other conversation itself. <laughs> it's a huge conversation. <laughs> I will not open that can of worms right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was, I was always, you know, I, I kind of, I guess I started off doing, like, modeling and nude modeling, so I would either model for some of my friends who had, you know, clothing companies, and then I started doing live drawing modeling. So I would, I would oh, yeah. you know, respond to ads for art school where they would need me to, you know, go into their class for two hours and, and you know, do a pose, hold it for 10 minutes and then and be there for like two, three hours. And yeah. so I was always comfortable, like nudity was not ever like really a big deal to me. I was oh, always comfortable okay. with it. And so that kind of led me into, you know, exploring some more like sex worky type things. Mm-hmm. So the first thing, the first thing I ever did that I guess falls under the category of sex work, which I mean, I'm, you know, sh- I'm sure you've probably like mentioned this before, but I'm just going to, you know, clarify that again. But yeah. I, there is like a misunderstanding that a lot of people think that sex work means by definition, like having sexual intercourse and while right. it does mean that for um a lot of people and a lot of folks who work in the industry um mm-hmm. to me when I when I look at sex work I, I see it as an umbrella term for um any kind of profession that involves the exchange of sexual services of any kind whether it be offering you know companionship you know stripping topless waitressing or maybe, maybe not topless waitressing but like you know, being a dom, like, yeah. being full service, and, and so all of that, so, yeah, when I say, you know, sex work, I, um, that's kind of, yeah, like, no, that's great, <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad you define it, too, because we, every, every now and then we do need a refresher, and there are a lot of civilians that live, like, live in, live, listen on the show yeah. as well, so yeah, it's totally. good to have that there, so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, yeah, like, I had done, like, random nude modeling gigs and stuff, and then there was, a friend of mine who, you know, we had talked about those kinds of like weird Craigslist gigs that we were doing. <laughs> yeah. And she had scored one, which was for a topless um, poker dealing for a bachelor party. And she couldn't, she for some reason couldn't, wasn't able to make it. And so she passed it on to me. Oh, nice. I like, I went to this gig and I just, I kind of was like, okay, whatever. I guess I'm like going to deal some poker without a top on that's fine with me and we ended up you know the other girl that I went with I don't even remember who she was but we we did like you know a strip show and they did lap dances and stuff so that was kind of like my first time 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was like at a private party and it was, it was great. You know, I had a fun time. The, yeah. the guys were nice and they, you know, they paid us and we had a fun time. Um, and then, you know, from, from that moment on, I started meeting more people who were doing that kind of work, mm-hmm. which eventually led me to meeting dancers who were working in clubs. Right. And then I, the first club I worked in actually was in Prince George. It was Alibis. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay, long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this was a long time ago. And when I was at Alibis, I wish I remembered the dancer's name. I would love to give her a shout out right now. But yeah, <laughs> she had like really um, like hooked me up with all the like phone numbers for the agents. Oh, and good. basically helped, gave me all the resources I needed to keep working on stage because I, I really loved, you know, I've always loved performing. I've always loved mm-hmm. being an entertainer and being on stage. So right. doing that over doing like, you know, private parties. I mean, I don't, I don't mind doing private parties. <laughs> it would definitely be fun, but I, I do prefer working on a stage as much as possible. So yeah, that having was, like, that like my, my gateway. Performative <laughs> aspect is so how do you say it just there's just like something about it being mm-hmm. on stage right just it's so yeah totally and like I'm, I'm definitely an exhibitionist and <laughs> I love to be watched so that really kind of adds to it I yeah <laughs> that will go hand in hand so it's kind yeah. of perfect <laughs> oh, totally <laughs> okay so that's how you got started with stripping and then how did mm-hmm. you because you said you you fell into burlesque afterwards which mm-hmm. yeah I mean I don't hear that kind of um journey into it very often usually as you said yeah. it's like the other way around totally. so yeah. what happened there <laughs> how did you get um, involved so when I first got settled into Vancouver um one of my good friends um or I mean I guess at the time her and I had just met and I'm oh yeah I met because okay the guy that I was dating at the time I had, you know, gone, like, he was staying at some person's house, and I went over to meet him Mm -hmm. after, and this was after I was working a shift at the number five orange, and I went over to, who was my boyfriend at the time, um, to the place that he was staying at, um, Mm -hmm. to hang out after work, and there was this woman, um, who's Crystal Precious, and she's a a pretty, yeah, she's a prominent plus she's amazing I love her so much (laughs) and so that was when I first met her and like she I wasn't like totally out about being a stripper with everyone like my close friends knew but it was still like you know I, I didn't it was never something that I was like oh my god I have to like hide this or whatever like I never really understood the whole stigma around it I, okay. it was just kind of like a no-brainer for me yeah but I, I was also you know after you know being a dancer for like almost a year I started realizing like oh right like yeah there's totally a lot of people that have a fucking stick up their ass about this that <laughs> are gonna be judgmental yeah and so I gotta be like you know diligent just for my own safety about who I open up to about this, just like to, for, for the sake of self-preservation. Yeah. And so, you know, when I met, when I met Crystal, she was I, like, I can tell she kind of gave me this look of like, Oh, you're like, you know, you're wearing like full face makeup. You look so glamorous. Like, what are you? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and like, I, I don't even know if I told her that I was stripper that night, but she, she totally knew. And like, she ended up telling me this afterwards. But yeah, so like I was wow. doing dance and stuff at the time, so she <laughs> she put me on uh, to doing 
uh, like dancing, backup dancing for her at some of her gigs. Yeah. Um, you know, at like Base Coast Festival oh, and that's some shows around the city too. So that that's, was definitely like a, a part of my entry into um, performance arts. And that's this, awesome. Um, reason, or I guess, I guess that's like one of the ways that I got to connect with a lot of people in the burlesque community in mm-hmm. Vancouver. Yeah. Um, as well as, you know, I had Nikki Nindors too, which, yes. uh, you know, like, you know, she, her and I worked at the Granville Strip for, oh my gosh, like almost four years together. And I had known about her through the burlesque community, Yeah, but it wasn't until she, I think I had been working at the Strip for maybe close to a year, maybe a bit less than that okay. when she came in and we were in that, you know, tiny ass change room. <laughs> I, I think you've probably gone up there before, but it was a really, really small change room. <laughs> and we spent, yeah, like three years, three and a half years working in that club together. So yeah. we got... Yeah, I, I love Nikki a lot. She's definitely one of the uh, dearest people in that industry to yes. me. And it's cool to have someone who's also on both sides of burlesque and stripping. And stripping, too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I've been yeah. meaning to get her on the show, too. So I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, many good people. Great guest. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, like, your foray into the burlesque scene. Was yeah. it? Was it difficult for you at all in terms of, I guess, switching the gears a little bit? Because burlesque is a little bit different than stripping on yeah, stage or in totally. the clubs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I see it as, you know, burlesque and stripping are two branches from the same tree. Mm-hmm. Like, back in the day, and this is a thing, like, I'll recommend for anyone listening if you're, especially if you're based in Vancouver, and even if you're not based in Vancouver, um, just because this is a really important piece of work but it's the book called history of burlesque it covers the history obviously of burlesque and showgirls in post-war vancouver oh wow that's interesting like you know you'll get to learn about all the clubs that existed in vancouver that have been shut down over the years and the takes in that book are really interesting because Mm. the author talks about how the role that stripping and burlesque played in feminism. Okay. Which I think is something that's really important to talk about, especially when it comes to, like, women's rights and sexual autonomy, uh, bodily liberation and all that. Like, those are all things that we owe um, to a lot of, like, strippers and burlesque dancers, and we don't get that recognition from people, especially in, like, third third wave feminism. Right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, I guess, like, switching gears... I don't know, like, so when when Crystal would put me on to her shows, I wasn't performing a lot back in that, back in those days, I was definitely more interested in focusing on just working at the club and doing that, okay. mm-hmm. but um, yeah, like, <laughs> I guess the main <laughs> thing for me in the difference is that, you know, you don't, you get naked faster and you don't take <laughs> your pennies off. <laughs> so much more to it than that like there's a whole yeah. aspect because you know when you're working at the club you're working the floor and yeah you're talking about all these interactions that you have with like customers which is not something that happens in burlesque at all no but um, yeah like i don't know it's it, yeah i guess kind of tracing back to what i said about burlesque and stripping being two branches from the same tree mm-hmm. is that one of the things that the that author I, I wish I could remember her name off the top of my head. Right now. <laughs> I'm like trying to Google it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but the woman who wrote um, the history of burlesque is how you know 
burlesque and modern stripping the way we see it today if you kind of like i said like two branches from the same tree if you go back the the moment where it kind of started splitting was when electronic music started becoming more of a thing because back in the oh. day it was all live bands that right. played for the dancers true and true. so yeah like when that i guess started happening i guess it was like a little bit of a divide and there's i mean there's so much more to it like i said I, I really just would like to recommend people to read that book it's really incredible and you'll learn so much in it <laughs> i'm trying to find it I'm like there's too many like i wrote the history burlesque book and now i think all of these things are coming up that are like not the right oh, book yeah. i'm like damn it yeah it's, the last <laughs> name I, i'm pretty sure her last name is ross like Diane, Diane, not Diane. I'm like Diane Ross. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that I'll would be amazing. Later. <laughs> oh wait, I think I found it. Is it called? Wait, wait, no, maybe not. Not it's not Burlesque West. Oh my god, is it, it is Burlesque West. Oh You're shit! Like such a <laughs> Becky L. Ross. Yeah, oh I, I just, I, I don't know why, I completely, like, fucked up the No, no, you're good. You know why I said the history of burlesque is because I, I recently made a post on my Instagram about oh. a show that I did with Crystal Precious, actually, that was called The History of Burlesque. There you go. And I, I'm pretty sure I referenced the book in there at some point, but, um, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I just spent the last five minutes like <laughs> referencing that book by a completely different title. <laughs> my bad. I'm that is sorry. okay. Becky L. Ross, if you're listening to this right now, I apologize. Becky L. Ross, Burlesque West, Showgirls, Sex, <laughs> and <laughs> Sin and Post War Vancouver, in case you guys are wondering. I'll put I'll post in the in the show notes at the yeah. <laughs> at the end. It's funny because the irony is like I, I just found my book in my house right now. I'm great as we finally <laughs> discovered that I completely fucked up the title. But of course, <laughs> yeah. that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Whoops. That's really Pandemic cool, though. Brain. No, and it's been a long day today too, so Perfect. don't even worry about it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so that's really cool, though, in terms of like your foray into it, and then also your involvement with the burlesque community. I also want to kind of pivot and talk to you about. The kink community, because obviously you've, you've dabbled in quite a bit in terms of kink okay. and fetish. How yes. did you get involved with that side? <laughs> well, okay, so I guess how, like, how did I discover that I was into kink and, yeah. and, and how that, okay, so let's backtrack. <laughs> <laughs> rewind, um, rewind. It's always like a thing that I kind of joke about, but I think one of the things that I mean, pretty much as soon as I started getting, being sexually active, I, I always had, like, an inclination towards, <laughs> um, like, kinky shit. Okay. And, you know, I, I, I've, I was talking about this with a friend of mine the other day and about, like, okay, what were moments in your childhood that, like, impacted, like, your current sex life? And it's like, mm. I, I really want to try and be careful how we talk about this because it's not, like, you know, I'm not trying to say, like, I was doing all these things when I was a kid, but, like, no, no. They, those do impact how your life is going to kind of um, flourish later yeah, on. of course. Um, and so one of those moments for me, so first of all, Aladdin was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. Okay. And the scene in particular that I'm referencing is um, Slave Jasmine. So when, <laughs> when Jafar, and she's wearing that sexy red outfit. Yes. 
and she's like you know handcuffed and everything and, and or I don't know if she was handcuffed I think no I think she, she was, was. I think she yeah, was handcuffed she, like you know walks up to him and she looks at him and she's like and your beard is so twisted <laughs> <laughs> But that moment, I felt something. Like, I remember looking at Jasmine. I was like, first of all, Jasmine, you look fine as hell. Like, <laughs> that was definitely one of my, like, bisexual queer awakenings for sure. Yes. Um, but also, like, the whole scene of, like, you know, like, I had a crush on Slade Jasmine. I also had a crush on Jafar. So, like, the whole, like, kind of villain, like, bad guy, like, who's holding you captive. Yeah, yeah. Um, archetype was something that definitely, like, played it, plays into, or I guess that informed how I, um, like, I guess, explore my own kinks. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, wow. that, I guess, like, you know, tracing way back. So, Let's kind of come back into my adult life. <laughs> Fast forward. Um, yeah, so I guess, like, yeah, this was all definitely always something that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, throughout most of my relationships, I, I fuck, actually, pretty much throughout every relationship, now that I think of it, and, and sexual encounters, too, that I've had, like, I was pretty much always the one who was kind of trying to get my partners to be like, hey, like, you should try tying me up or like I have these handcuffs or I have this collar and a leash and right. you should play with it. And it's like, <laughs> you know, that, that gets as much as a lot of the partners that I've had, you know, over the years have expressed being open to doing that. Like mm-hmm. there's been many times where they weren't always initiating that, which especially as someone who, you know, I, I'm a switch. Like I can, I can top, I can bottom, I can, you know, pancake ain't done until it's flipped on both sides. <laughs> but I definitely prefer in my personal life, for the most part, um, being more a submissive. Okay. And so it's like, it gets kind of exhausting, I guess, to always be the one who's trying to initiate because it like right. sort of goes against like the dynamic that I'm, you know, not to say that like submissives never initiate because we do have to have those conversations yes. with each other, especially if we're talking about kink so we can, you know, go over boundaries, safe. For and all that um but yeah like I don't know I've 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 often to be honest shied away from a lot of the parties in the scene like specifically Mm. in Vancouver Vancouver? yeah it's it's very like (laughs) there's not a lot of diversity and representation in the scene in my experience and like you know especially since I've you know spent a, a lot more time and put a lot more effort into, you know, reconnecting with my, my indigenous roots, um, mm-hmm. in the last few years, um, I've, I've kind of, you know, the more, the more I dive into like how politicized my existence is, yes. the more I realize that, you know, being someone who enjoys being in a submissive role, I don't really want to do that with like white folks for, yeah. the, for the most part, you know, and, and I'm not yeah. saying like, I'm never going to, you know, bottom for a white man, but I probably won't. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> the thing is that, you know, if I, if I met, you know, I always tell myself if I meet someone and there's like good vibes and I feel safe and I, and I feel seen and I, and I, you know, know for sure that they're aware of the power dynamics at play and, mm-hmm. and the politics that come into that, then, you know, I wouldn't deprive myself of pleasure, but unfortunately, this is definitely something that's pretty rare for um, a lot of white folks. Mm. Um, yeah, like, you know, I yeah. generally stay more open to, like, 
women, but in generally white men, like I'm very, um, very hesitant towards, you know, being putting myself in such a vulnerable position of course um because i'm like afraid that that's gonna trigger some of my my own intergenerational trauma you know and like not to kink shame anyone but there's like something that i noticed which is like a a theme that happens you know within the kink community and like i mean to anyone listening who's into kink like i mean no disrespect if this is your thing but like the the kind of religious King, so like you know, women dressing up as nuns yes. or as a priest, like that is um, like very triggering for me, especially oh. because you know, like my grandfather and my great grandmother were both um, residential school survivors. And oh my gosh! I you know, knowing like I just have like the association that I have with the Catholic Church is very trauma centered, <laughs> and so you know, maybe for some people that could be a way for them to like reframe that into a positive experience but I just don't like that totally that's a hard hard limit for me and like yeah I don't know not to say that that's the only reason why I've shied away but it is definitely part of part of one of the reasons but yeah I guess like since I started feeling a little more distanced from I guess the scene and and feeling very hesitant to getting involved in it like Mm -hmm. a lot of my explorations and my education and the knowledge that I have within take was done primarily through um, research like on my own and only in the last like couple years have I started really you know finding like other BIPOC um, folks and Mm -hmm. so for anyone listening if you're not familiar with the term BIPOC it's an acronym for black indigenous and people of color thank you Um, for the reminder (laughs) yeah for sure (laughs) Um, yeah like I started like seeing you know okay like there's other BIPOC kinksters out there yes and you know some of the people uh or I guess like there's this one power couple in particular that um they have a porn company um or I guess like a film company called Royal Fetish Films Okay. Um, their names are King Noir and Jet Setting Jasmine, and they're both um, both black performers and are doing. I mean, I love like their their porn and everything that comes. You know, <laughs> they produce whether it be films or their podcasts, and the content that they create is just it's really amazing. And they also talk a lot about you know they get involved very politically as well, like in the porn industry and oh, how cool. you know a, you know there's racism problem in the the porn industry yes there is I've like I really it's cool to see other you know performers and people who are in the scene that are aware of that and who are really kind of basically dedicating their lives to carving out safe spaces you know they they work with a lot of black folks but you know for just BIPOC people in general I guess I think it's really affirming to seeing to be seeing other people out there who are kind of pushing to change the narrative and yeah. make sure that, you know, BIPOC people can have safe spaces to be their best freaky selves without feeling uncomfortable because totally. of the racial power dynamics that might be at play. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. I hear that. And I've just given them a follow too. So I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. This is so oh yeah, cool. totally. They're, they're really, um, they're really, I mean, they're like beautiful, like physically, like incredibly yeah. people, but they're also like, I just love their work and they're both very, um, I, yeah, I look up to them a lot. Really cool. I'm, yeah. I'm going to have to, I'm like trying to follow all their accounts right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. 
another resource, right? So <laughs> if there's mm-hmm. an opportunity where I can learn or my listeners can learn, then I'm going to take advantage of it. So <laughs> for sure, yeah. <laughs> but I wanted, okay, so I want us to pivot the conversation in terms of you identifying as Indigenous. Mm-hmm. So because uh, you mentioned some things back there too. Um, you mentioned residential schools, which is mm-hmm. a term that, you know, a lot of Canadians be a lot like very familiar with. Um, yeah. with in terms of with like our, our history here so but we do have a lot of listeners from the states and also other parts yeah. of the world as well do you mind kind of going into what that means what that entails and what that means for the indigenous people for sure so for anyone who might be from the states the equivalent of what happened in the states was the boarding schools and right. essentially what happened is that the government there were Um, RCMP officers that would come into um, the homes of Indigenous people and would steal their children away and send them into Catholic schools away, like far away from their families and their whole mission. And this is like something that was literally written into legal documents. And and the Indian Act was kill the Indian, save the man. And so the goal was basically to completely, you know, disconnect us from our language our Mm -hmm. culture um our traditional ways and to assimilate us into um like catholic white centric cultures yeah you know there's been a lot of um like you know really horrific things that i mean first of all like snatching the children out of someone's home is like a fucked up thing to do in the first place exactly um there's a lot a lot a lot a lot of children died in those schools a lot of them did not get properly documented and so even the numbers if you go and try to learn a little bit more about the history of residential schools some of the numbers that you might find online might not truly reflect like the actual amount of people that died within those institutions and so you know they, they would do things like they would you know cut cut our hair which is like such an important part of who we are as indigenous Mm -hmm. people like our you know that I don't want to like homogenize us as indigenous folks um, because you know every nation has their own has their own teachings and so I can't right. I can't speak you know for all indigenous folks but this is definitely a, a thing that is common for a lot of us is mm-hmm. that you know our hair and what I've learned is that you know our hair connects us to our ancestors and to our culture and so that's why a lot of oh, indigenous wow. folks don't you know have long hair and oh. so cut, getting your hair cut is like a really you know, for, for me and some of the teachings that I carry, like you don't cut your hair unless like you're grieving and like, you know, someone really important to you passes away. Interesting. Um, and so like, you know, being sent into these schools and, and having your hair cut off is a really, really traumatizing thing to go through. Absolutely. And, you know, we, you know, we would get, you know, the, there was physical um, sexual abuse that would happen if we were caught, you know, trying to speak our language or, or practice our culture and, so that, like, the, the impacts that that uh, left onto our families is still felt today. Yes. And, you know, a lot of people think that this is a thing of the past, but it's not. the last residential school closed in 1996. What? Um, I, was, I was alive when this was still happening. And so there's, wow. there's, there's still a lot of, you know, residential school survivors that are alive today. And 
you know, even though I, I haven't experienced that personally and mm-hmm. it's more, it's more removed for me because my grandfather um, passed away when my mom was eight. So that oh. my, my relationship to my indigeneity is very complicated. Mm-hmm. I didn't really, I, I always knew like I was indigenous on my mom's side, but right. I never knew much about like my family history. It wasn't until later on in my adult life that I started really pushing to learn more and, and try to find out, you know, where my people are from. Oh. And, what's the history and all that yeah for sure yeah like you know and but like we still feel that intergenerational trauma like that presents itself in in a lot of different ways um for us um so yeah yeah that kind of you know there's there's a lot more there is a lot i would recommend like especially if you know you're you're not non-indigenous to canada or or north america that i think it's really necessary for everyone to read into that history mm-hmm. because they don't teach that in schools they do not at all you know they have the the classic like oh yeah the boats came in and we had a nice <laughs> dinner and it was great and we signed the treaties and the end and it's like no no like we're still getting our lands taken from us at gunpoint yes and, the relationship that the, the the colonial state known as Canada has with Indigenous people is still really, really toxic. And yes. Abusive, so, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like they've just, <laughs> just put a Band-Aid on yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, totally. And there are a lot of resources, and I'm sure we can um, plug some at the end of the show as well, but... I'm actually, I just started taking a course in Indigenous Studies in Canada. There was like a free one. Yeah, there's a free course on Coursera. Yeah, I I was like, oh, what's this? I'm like, okay, it's free. I get new pandemic learning. So, and and just trying to do my part and and being responsible and just trying to educate myself. Yeah, that's so good. It's free. So I was like, well, I'll take free knowledge. So, yeah, totally. But yeah, so there's there's so much there. I I don't even know where to begin on this topic because like obviously your culture is a huge part of you. Like for myself, I'm Filipino. I'm I was born here. I'm Filipino Chinese. And yeah. I feel like I, I went through a lot of like a different identities growing up, you know. I Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and that's normal. <laughs> that's normal, but like <laughs> You know, back then for me, it wasn't cool to um, show my Asian-ness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was yeah, totally. like, cool to be white or all the all the cool kids were white. And then yeah. I went through like an Asian phase where I wanted to be Vietnamese and I wanted to be Chinese and I wanted to be Japanese, but I just didn't want, I wasn't proud of who I was. So, yeah, totally. <laughs> it's only... Yeah, I feel that, too. Yeah. You know, kind of tracing back to, like, my mom, you know, growing up, like, she's she's French and Indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, she grew up in a small town in northern Quebec, and, you know, it was very racist. And yes. a lot of people, you know, we have to understand from that generation because, you know, the... the people were still getting taken out of their homes uh, for residential school. A lot of people lied about their identity as, as a way to protect themselves and their children. Oh. And would, would either say that they're, like, non-Indigenous completely or they would say that they're, like, half mm. and, like, you know. And so that, that was the thing that a lot of people did to keep themselves safe. Safe, and yeah. So talking about, you know, being Indigenous and whatnot, like, that was not something that was cool at all mm. for my mom when, when she was growing up. And so it was very much, like, yeah, like, we're kind of following the – a white centric eurocentric like catholic yes. way of living and so you know that that I, I felt that like growing up like even though my mom always knew about it it's just not something that was encouraged 
And so I feel like I've been, I've definitely been like one of the, the main person in my family who's been really pushing to um, strength, re-strengthen that. And, and yeah. you know, my mom, it's been nice. Like she's, she's been supportive of it and has been that's definitely good. open to learning by my side and, totally. and whatnot. So that's been like a cool way for us to connect. Yeah. Where did that push come from? Where, where What motivated you to kind of dig deeper within your heritage? <laughs> Well, I always wanted, like, I when I was a kid, I grew up, growing up, I would always mo- ask my mom questions, like, mom, like, what about, you know, what about our cremating side? Like, where mm-hmm. where are we from? Like, do you know anything about, you know, our history? And it was always like, no, no, like, you know, the, the stories and stuff that she would have are very limited, like, mm. you know, even my uncle would sometimes tell me about, you know, stories of their, their grandma, so my great grandma, you know, picking medicines and, and making salves and making you know, all these kind of potions and using plants oh, a lot on. and yeah. like very much being into, you know, having some like land-based knowledge, mm-hmm. um, which was cool, but like, you know, that's still very little compared to all the things that there are. No. So right. I guess, yeah, like one of the things that really pushed me was, um, you know, living in Vancouver and seeing, you know, just, or, or even just like looking at, for example, climate change and how, a lot, you know, of the, the the big grassroots movements that are responsible for, you know, creating, like, lasting changes mm-hmm. and resistance against colonialism are led by Indigenous folk. And so, right. for example, in Vancouver, one of the main battles that I've seen going on over the years has been against the Kinder Morgan pipeline yes, just and, like, on Burnaby Mountain. And so mm-hmm. seeing how, you know, these marches and everything and were always led by indigenous folks that made me really want to learn more about you know my own for sure (laughs) my own heritage so yeah um, I had a friend of mine who brought me to my first ceremony here in Vancouver and you know Vancouver is such a melting pot of of culture indigenous people from all over you know there's people from the the plains there's people from the prairies there's obviously you know Coast Salish people Mm -hmm. Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh like there's there's people there's really people from all over and so the the ceremony that she had brought me to was it was on Tsleil-Waututh reservation and um they, you know, the, the, the man who was leading it was um, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish, I believe. But, you know, okay. there, was, there was people from all kinds of, all different nations there. So that's like what really kind of started solidifying me kind of, I guess, like, yeah, going to ceremony and being around other people and understanding that, like, right, that sense of like disconnection and displacement mm-hmm. that I feel is a very common thing that a lot of folks so yes. that kind of evolved into me connecting with other indigenous folks and and just like strengthening that that's incredible that I have to myself so yeah it's been it's been a very like <laughs> complicated <laughs> journey there's lots of ups and downs I'm sure. questioning myself pretty much every single day on like what's the best way that I can go about this as like a mixed race white passing you know those are mm-hmm. all things that are really important to take into consideration that For you sure. know like I can only speak from a limited experience like I don't you know experience racism in the way that like visibly indigenous people do mm-hmm. and like you know my family has felt it on on different levels, levels but yeah. to understand that like you know there there's only there are certain times where like I just pass the mic to people who have more lived experience than I do on certain topics right 
Wow. Oh my gosh. There's so much there. (laughs) So, so much there. Oh my gosh. I wanted to ask you, how does being Indigenous affect sex work and your sexuality? Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, since I've like, since I started really reconnecting um, with myself through ceremony, um, one of the main things that I had kind of noticed was this sense of like shame around sexuality and and this is like a complicated this is a complicated conversation because I have to understand my privilege here as um you know someone who like I'm not a like I'm a descendant of residential school survivors Mm -hmm. but you know the experience of someone who lived through through that that directly like they're because of like you know the sexual abuse and all the things that was experienced by Mm -hmm. folks who were unfortunately forced into those institutions that's going to make their healing process and their connection process to sexuality as a positive thing Mm -hmm. a lot more complicated than what I have and so you know like I I never really like I never disclosed doing that um Mm -hmm. you know being a dancer and all that yeah within that circle because I just through like things that I had heard other people say and talk about like, Oh, you know, you have to cover up or you have to do this or you have to do that. I just never really felt like it was a safe place for me to talk about that. Um, which was sad because to be honest, I felt like I was living a double life a lot of the times. And it sucks because like I I come to these places to heal and to find myself and to feel like I, I have to censor a huge part of who I am um right. was really hard for me to deal with for and sure. so yeah like I kind of battled back and forth between like oh gosh like how do I connect these two pieces it, it's just so like you know I, I just kind of felt like there was perpetually this sense of conflict within myself and yeah. so that's when I when I when I found out a friend of mine um I think she was Shaquapmek, which is a, a nation in, in the interior okay. um, around, like, Kamloops, I believe. Okay. Um, I mean, the territory the territory expands, like, past there, but this, that's where my friend was from. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyways, she had told me, like, I remember seeing her at a conference. I think this was three years ago or something or four years ago, maybe. Okay. And she said, oh, my God, like, you know, and this was when I first started going to ceremony and and kind of digging in and connecting with other indigenous folks and she she told me because she knew I was a dancer yeah and she asked me if I knew about Virgo Nation and I said yeah oh you should check them out they're an all-indigenous burlesque troupe like they're super cool I think you would really like them and so it wasn't until I think maybe a year later or something that I decided you know and this was around the time where I started feeling a lot of um like sense of conflict within like my indigenous identity and right. my sex work. Okay. And so I reached out to them because I noticed that like, right, they are doing that work to, you know, rematriating yes. indigenous sexuality and reframing it and reclaiming it as ours yes, and our connection to our bodies and, and whatnot. So I, I reached out, the first person I reached out to was Ruth. Okay. Ruth Arbert, who's one of the, founders um, of Mm -hmm. the group and you know I reached out to her and we we kind of chatted back and forth online and it was really it was really affirming for me to be able to have those conversations Mm -hmm. without feeling like I constantly had to separate the the two two. because that's what I was experiencing before it was like oh I can talk about sex work with other sex workers or other dancers 
but then when I talk about like ceremony and culture, um, it's always with another group. And right. I was really craving some people who could understand both, both worlds. Yeah, for sure. And want to find that intersection. And so, yeah, like we, we connected and we became friends. And then, you know, fast forward to, I guess, last year, they invited me to perform in one of their shows at oh, cool. um, Transform Cabaret last year. And then... Um, yeah, like this summer, they invited me to join the group. So awesome. now I'm currently an official member, <laughs> um, which has been really awesome. To that is just, super you know, cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I guess I kind of veered off a little bit. There, no, that's but, okay. It's all related. Um, it's all related. <laughs> so Yeah, totally. But I think, I guess, kind of coming back to just like how, how my, my indigeneity affects my involvement in the sex and adult entertainment industry is that you know obviously you know as indigenous people like we carry that intergenerational trauma and which is a direct product of colonialism and the church and you know the the church unfortunately has inflicted this idea of shame Mm -hmm. around our sexuality and that you know uh, it's not something to, you know, pleasure and, and these things oh are not something gosh. to be, like, encouraged to no. participate in. And so I think that it's, you know, what, and I guess what I was mentioning earlier, too, specifically to people who are direct survivors, because I, I really believe in, like, trailblazing and going ahead and, and being very pro uh let's dismantle this toxic shit but (laughs) i also believe in being gentle um with like our elders and stuff because we yes we carry that generational trauma but we also don't fully understand what it's like to live through that directly and so i think it's it's a very it's a conversation that needs to be nuanced Mm -hmm. and we need to take into consideration you know the experiences that everyone has within that but I think that for me like as a descendant of a residential school survivor I feel like it's important to make sure that like I can connect with other people yeah and that we can start reframing that narrative and 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 you know saying that yeah like we don't have to be ashamed of our bodies and this idea of like patriarchal ownership and that you know our, our bodies and our sexuality is only something to be seen by like one man right like, oh my god partner. it's like no like actually <laughs> I am my own person yeah this is my body I can make my own rules and I can choose to use it however I want and that doesn't make me any less worthy than you know someone who chooses to be in a you know vanilla monogamous relationship <laughs> <laughs> no, or to cover up and yeah like I really believe that just like live and let live yeah you know I'm not hurting Simple. anybody I'm, I'm living my best life you, you might not agree with me, and that's fine. That's okay, but, like, though. don't come at me with that sense of moral superiority. Oh, my gosh. I hate bullshit. that. It's total bullshit. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I yeah, hate it so and, much. Like, I feel, you know, I think, like, every sex worker or, like, adult entertainer feels that, you know, from society. Like, you know, we're uh. seen as such we're seen as below, like, yeah. you know, bottom of the food chain or whatever you want to call it. But <laughs> I think it's so not true. Like, we're, you know, sex workers and strippers and, and people that I, so many people that I've met who work in the industry are some mm-hmm. of the most caring, loving, and loyal people yes. that I've ever met in my life. And there's this, like, fierce sense of love that I, I feel towards, like, my peers in the community that I have not found anywhere else. Totally. And I think that, like, a lot of that comes from being marginalized by society and it's like 
you know, not to say that it's always like that, because, you know, we definitely got some beef in the community, <laughs> like any community does, but, like, I, I really think it's important for us to stick with one another and, and have each other's backs and, and fight, totally. <laughs> you know, for the whole group of sex workers, and that's where I think inter- intersectionality comes in as something that's really important when we start talking about politics regarding mm-hmm. sex work and you know there's this term I, I don't know who coined it and if there's we can even trace it back to one person okay uh, but the term hierarchy or yeah hierarchy and it's like the this idea that certain professions within the umbrella term of sex work are better than others so one yes. thing that I've seen a lot is you know strippers versus full service sex workers right. or sugar babies and thinking yes. that just because you don't have sex with your clients that you're better that you're than better. others yeah. I keep hearing and this like, too that's just like that drives me nuts it's so gross because it's like first of all bitch you're not better <laughs> just because you're not sucking dick or you're not fucking old you know licking old man balls like you know? <laughs> that doesn't make you any better no and, you know and it's like really like we have to think society unfortunately looks down on us and like a lot of them will just because stripping for example is like one of the more acceptable forms of sex work like we can't let that get to our heads and start internalizing that and treating you know full service workers or or sugar babies or porn stars yeah street street level workers too like we got to keep those those are the most vulnerable ones of course and like i believe that when we're fighting for like rights and and justice and to be seen and, and to be treated with dignity and respect. And like, we always have to keep the most marginalized people as part of the equation and, mm-hmm. and like, you know, not center ourselves as like the more privileged workers in the community. You no, know? totally. I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up because that, that was supposed to be on the agenda today, but I was like, Oh my gosh, do we have time to like fit everything in? <laughs> I'm yeah. so, thank you so much for bringing that yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to go back to, um, you mentioned, and I, correct me if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly because I think I mispronounced it earlier before recording, but you you also dance, um, you mentioned with Virgo Nation. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Virgo Is that correct? Nation. Okay, <laughs> How has uh, performing with them, because you were performing with them last year and obviously mm-hmm. this year too, but like how has your performances with them how has that differed from say your past sex work or your other forms of sex work because you have other layer Um, i'll just i guess say like my experience like dancing with virgo nation i wouldn't categorize that as sex work it's more like that burlesque and performance art Mm -hmm. um but it's definitely revolutionized my relationship like that that like being part of virgo nation has actualized my desire to have the intersection between my indigeneity mm-hmm. and my sexuality meet and so to right. be able to connect with other indigenous femmes and two-spirit people who are you know either in that line of work or who are very much like on the front lines of you know fighting for sexual sovereignty and, mm-hmm. and body liberation and empowerment through reclaiming our sexualities having a group and a troop of like women and femmes that I can do that with has been um 
yeah, like it's been an incredibly healing experience. It's very validating. Great. Um, to, to like, I, cause I felt so alone for a long time. Yeah. And I just was like, am I ever, like, I knew like it would be a stupid thing to assume that I'm the only person to like, <laughs> live that. But I, I just remember having this deep sense of yearning of like, where are my people? Like, yeah. where are the indigenous sluts at? Like, <laughs> you find them, you know? And so, yeah, I just, um, it's been really awesome, like, connecting with them and, yeah. and having that sense of community. And, yeah, we're a performance group, and we share our craft and our burlesque and our dancing, but before anything else, we are a support group to one another. And it's just been amazing to have that sense of sisterhood with each member mm-hmm. and, and not feel so alone within my own musings and, and feel seen and have, yeah. have people that we can like kind of use each other as a sounding board right. to talk about our own experiences and our own unique experiences about, you know, the, the shame and the, the, the complicated sexuality and the relationship that indigenous people have um, with their sexualities. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, I'm really just so glad that you're able to find that group because I just yeah. I, I can feel your yearning for yeah. your both your identities to come meet together. Yeah, and totally. I, I could hear that in your voice. I'm like, wow! I'm so glad that it was able to work out. So yeah, it's a beautiful it, story. It was definitely like a big lifesaver in a lot of ways. Not to be all like dramatic, oh, wow. but like it's, it's kind of <laughs> true. <laughs> I guess uh, the last part there that I wanted to kind of touch on in terms of dancing and kind of marrying your culture and that whole performance ship, how do you or how or can you incorporate culture into performance without appropriating? Well, I think like if you're non-indigenous, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I would like kind of stray away from that. Like, totally. If, if this is referring to like other folks, because um, there's definitely been a lot of people who, you know, perhaps were well-meaning and were trying to create performance to like honor, you know, indigenous people. But mm-hmm. I think that if someone's going to go out and do that, that like you need to you know, reach out to Indigenous people and, and ask them, is this a good way to honor? For sure. <laughs> um, this, you know, um, but I guess if, if you're asking me specifically, um, yeah, definitely, like, there's, yeah, like, I guess one of the group numbers, and this was before I, I joined Virago Nation, but mm-hmm. one of their numbers that they did um, was, uh, I forget what the name of it, it was like a powwow, a go-go, and it was oh. like a, they did it to Redbone, Come and Get Your Love, which is, like, such an iconic song for Indigenous people. Which, okay. It's, like, a main... I mean, I consider it sort of, like, a mainstream old-school song. Says, Come and get your love. <laughs> that song. Okay. Anyways, if you don't know, you should go listen to it. Um, but, yeah, so they, they did a number, and they were dancing in... I think they were... I've only seen it like once like half of the performance so I think that they were dancing in like uh like fancy shawl powwow formation so that's a whole other conversation itself but (laughs) powwows are uh like a celebration um that happened kind of all across what's known today as North America Mm -hmm. but um it's a place where you know we celebrate culture and people dance and you know there's different categories of dance for like women and men right 
I'm not a powwow dancer myself. I've been wanting to get into it, but it's okay. it's, it's a process. You know, there's a, that's a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other thing. But yeah, the the main categories that I know of are jingle dress, fancy shawl, and traditional. Okay. Um, and so I I think from what I recall, I'm pretty sure they were they were dancing um, the fancy shawl steps, but wearing like sixties. Um, kind of like go-go dancing costume. Oh, interesting. So that's definitely a way that you can incorporate it. Right. But yeah, I'm not sure what the creation process of that act was like. Um, right. Because I, like I said, like I wasn't a part of Virgo Nation back then. But I think that like, you know, if I were to go forward myself with trying to create a number that was incorporating that into my act, that the first and foremost would be about okay, you know, talking to my people, talking to my teachers and like, you know, asking my elders and people like, what's the best way that I can represent this in a way that's like, you know, good. And also understanding that like culture is something that is ever changing Mm -hmm, (laughs) through time and life, you know, that, that evolves and it changes as, you know, people grow and old paradigms start to shift Shift, yeah for sure yeah I don't know if that really answered your question no 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 it does it does (laughs) (laughs) I guess with that we can actually go into some real (laughs) (laughs) Q&A and uh, the first question comes from me because I actually forgot to ask you in the beginning of the show too because we didn't get to talk about responsible dominance so I thought I'd bring it up now. So, because I know you did a workshop with Blackson, and mm-hmm. I love them. Yeah, yes. amazing. That's another resource actually for listeners who are into kink or who are interested in kink. Um, I would highly recommend uh, checking out Blackson on Instagram. All right. At, I think I think it's at Sinblack or Blackson. Um, their Instagram handle. I'll plug it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll plug it. Um, but they are a um kink educator um a pornographer and so oh, cool. if you're looking for some new smut <laughs> to or, or, um, yeah they, they have an only fans and probably oh, cool. other like sites that i might not know of but yeah. yeah they do teach workshops um which i've i've learned so much just from like some of the reading that I've or some of the reading that I've seen them write and the the virtual classes and workshops that I've taken with them but yeah I guess like you know it's it's been helpful for me especially because I have worked as a dominatrix Mm -hmm. um, over the years like I said it's been more of a thing on the side it's not like a my full-time job but I have entertained um some submissives over the last couple years um, which has been a really I, I like I enjoy being in that role. Yeah. Um, but like yeah, learning how to do so ethically it has been like obviously a monumental and very important thing for me to do to make sure that I'm you know, being safe with my practice. Yeah, um, of course. But yeah, <laughs> I guess responsible dominance, I mean, for anyone who's interested in exploring um like consensual power exchange within a mm-hmm. uh, sexual or even in like a non-sexual context because BDSM and and like the dom and sub relationship doesn't always have to involve sex right but I would say obviously consent always first um you know especially if you're newer to this Mm -hmm. I would recommend like kind of seeing if you can dive into some resources like you know Blackson and and finding other educators online Mm -hmm. so you can learn more about 
you know, the different kinks that are out there. And like, so you know, obviously like we, you might not know all the things that you're into yeah. <laughs> right away. Like I've learned, you know, for sure, like, you know, having that kind of consensual power exchange and, you know, being a submissive, a submissive has something that's always been interesting, but there's been so many new things that I've learned about myself and new kinks that I've, <laughs> I've discovered I was into as I, grew deeper into my practice, you know, whether it be shibari or rope yeah. or, you know, like knife play or, oh. you know, there's like so many things that, you know, we can be into. Yeah. So to just, yeah, knowledge is power. So educating ourselves as much as possible. And also if you're playing, you know, with someone or you're going to choose to exchange or to engage in um, like a kinky relationship with someone <laughs> to always be really clear about what your needs are and yep. what you're looking out of the experience. Definitely being informed by trauma is very important. Okay. Um, so like, you know, I'll, 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 I'll talk a little bit about one of my experiences sure. um, that I had. So I had a partner of mine, um, who, you know, we, we engaged in a lot of, we did a lot of kinky shit together. We had a lot of kinky sex together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like, I like getting choked out consensually. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. (laughs) Um, When done properly. (laughs) Yeah. Properly. And so, you know, we had obviously an agreement was like, okay, well, listen, I like being choked out, but I'm going to tell you once I tap on your wrist, First of all, don't choke me out if my, my hands are, like, bound or, like, at least figuring out, like, a nonverbal communication if that was the case so you right. can know when to let go. Yeah. But I would I would tap on his arm and there was multiple times where he would not let go and keep choking me. And oh it, like, it happened uh, a couple times, actually, where I lost consciousness and oh, I passed shit. out and I woke up and I had no idea where What was. happened? Yeah. Oh, um, my God. This so is that scary. was, like, really fucked up and really scary. Yeah. And... Yeah, so, like, you know, for example, because I've had those experiences, like, I still enjoy getting choked out today, but I, I don't ever do it with someone without having a proper conversation. Right. And I would encourage people, like, don't wait for something bad to happen to have that yes. conversation. Like, it's really, you know, BDSM is, like, there's, you can't, there's always going to be risk in anything that you yeah. do, but it's about reducing risk and, yes. like, seeing what's the safest way that you can go about this. And so, you know, for me, coming from my own personal experiences, if I'm going to be engaging in uh, power exchange with someone and, you know, be disclosing, okay, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to do some rope play. I want, you know, like choke me out or whatever. And and to be able to explain to this person, like, listen, I have trauma around like erotic asphyxiation. So Mm -hmm. I need you to like handle this with care and with love and know that like, you know, when I tell you to let go you let go like this is not a game of you holding on for an extra couple seconds like yeah. you, you gotta you gotta stop when I stop because like people you can die from that kind of shit like yeah. it's not you know it's all fun and games but like there's there's very serious risk associated to a lot of practices and practices within the world of BDSM so that's yeah, why absolutely. I think like educate 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 <laughs> like, you, you <laughs> as much never, as you can <laughs> you can never be you know it's an ongoing process and I, I think yeah people should not think that you know they're so knowledgeable on so many things that they can just stop learning like <laughs> there's always going to be new takes out yeah there. absolutely um, yeah so being <laughs> trauma informed consent having negotiating always before playing with someone um and like 
you know, I'm, I'm going to quote Blackson again. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is going to be my last point on this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so there was in one of the, the workshop on responsible dominance that I did with him, he said something which I really, really, really resonated with. And okay. he said, view dominance as something, or, sorry, they said, pardon, I misgendered them. Um, That's okay. They said, uh, view dominance as something that you can call upon and not who you are. Which I think oh. a lot of people get into kink and BDSM and power exchange without really realizing that like you have to be doing that from a place of love and empathy yes. and and a lot of like you know especially if we're looking at like heterosexual relationships mm-hmm. and specifically like you know between like a, a cisgendered man and a woman like I've, I've had so many experiences like you know when I've dated certain men that you know we would have like be more rough with each other Mm -hmm. um where like I could feel like that was like coming from a place of misogyny yeah which is really icky and I think that a lot a lot a lot of people who think that they're dominance or view themselves as dominance are like oh yeah I'm kinky it's like well no you're not kinky you're just an asshole who's using your own misogyny and disguising it as being into kink because real kink and real BDSM like especially if you're being a dominant like you gotta fucking watch yourself like you gotta check yourself always and like really evaluate like where why are you doing this yes where is this coming from are you like? Are you going to be keeping the best interest, like your submissive's best interest at heart, with mm-hmm. every action? Are you going to listen to them when they tell you that, you know, maybe you, something you did was too much? How are you yeah. going to correct that? You know? Yeah, like, totally. It's really like at the end of the day, I think it comes down to accountability, uh, respect, and you know, always being open to feedback and criticism. Yeah, and criticism because, for you know, sure. We're not like we're not perfect we're gonna make mistakes but I think that the real like thing that's gonna demonstrate our good character is how we deal with those mistakes and how we utilize utilize those experiences as a way to grow and move forward and you know keep bettering ourselves as human beings and as kinky people (laughs) (laughs) well said I'm so glad I got to bring that up before I let you go so I was like ah Mm -hmm. But there's yeah. just a couple more questions here as well. So yeah. um, this person writes in, what myths or stereotypes are you sick and tired of hearing? Um, of like, I guess like about sex work. Yeah, they didn't specify. Um, so it's really up to you how you yeah. take the question. Um, I'm really tired of the like narrative around like you were forced into this oh, yeah. or you have daddy issues. Yes. <laughs> or like you must have a drug addiction and uh, like I just like those they're so are old yeah, yeah it's oh so my god old. it's like I'm, I'm real sick of it because <laughs> like it's I tiresome. actually have a fucking great relationship with my dad like he knows I he knows I dance and like he's like you know when I first told him it wasn't you know we didn't talk for like five months or whatever but like yeah. he totally turned around and like my brother and my cousin you know, knew that I, what I was doing and saw that, you know, I have a good head on my shoulders. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine, you know, and I'm, I think the main, uh, like concern was like safety for him, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like, you know, he totally came around and now he's like asking me questions about like, you know, what a night, what, what's it like to work in a <laughs> club and whatnot. And so that's like, it's really that's brought so us cool. closer. Which that's is awesome. awesome. Like I love being able to like just 
tell him, you know, about like, you know, there'd be times when he'd come and visit me from Montreal and I'd, I'd, you know, we'd be having dinner at my house and I'd go to work after and he was like, well, your makeup looks so nice. Like, have a good night. Good luck. That's awesome. That's so great to hear. So supportive. Yeah, totally. There's like, you know, Nikki Nindors, I I mean, not to like speak on her experience, but like, you know, when she would do the retro script show, um, you know, her parents would come and they would have a booth and they were like so excited about it. It So awesome. Oh my gosh. I love it. Um, Yeah, totally. So that's, (laughs) that's definitely one. It's like, you know, yeah. Like the, the conflation of, trafficking sex trafficking and consenting sex sex worker yeah for sure consenting adults is like very annoying and i just wish that more people understood that those are two different things completely Yeah, yeah, it's really dangerous to, and we've mm-hmm. talked about this in the podcast um, quite a bit, but it's really dangerous to combine those two together and put yeah. them under the same, same umbrella. So Yeah, it's dangerous to both sex workers and to actual traffic victims. victims. Trafficking. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. Very frustrating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> and I guess the last question here is, what's the best way to educate ourselves about Indigenous justice? Hmm. Um, well, if... I'm not sure where this person was based out of, but I'll just give a couple resources here for people who are based in Canada. Sure. Um, so first of all, um, I would recommend reading the inquiry report um, for missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Okay. Um, indigenous women are far more likely to experience, I and I, I, can't, I don't remember all the statistics and the numbers by heart for everything, mm-hmm. but we're something like five times more likely to get, you know, experience violence, get murdered, like, earlier on in our lives, right. um, and whatnot, so reading the inquiry report on, and I, these are links and, and documents that I can uh, personally send you if you wanted to include them in the, um, the description. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so away. reading that... Uh, read the Indian Act. This is something, especially like for people in Canada, yes. this is a, doc, a legal document that the whole goal of it was basically like asserting like control over the rights of Indigenous people and mm-hmm. how the land and the resources and everything was used. Um, right. So reading the Indian Act, those are both like lengthy reads, but necessary if you're yeah. living on these lands. I yeah. Think. Um, <laughs> And yeah, just listening, listening to indigenous people, of course, like, you know, we're not a monolith. (laughs) No (laughs) person can speak for all of indigenous people together. So um, keeping your perspectives diverse and really trying to focus on like grassroots people who are actually on the front lines Mm -hmm. and not necessarily like nonprofit, like governmental (laughs) organizations and stuff. Like the, the real important work is, you know, people who are, in the streets and disrupting the systems and yes and you know doing that so yeah trying to educate yourself um on those those yeah there's more there's definitely more resources I feel like I can throw in there you know I guess the battle um between the Wet'suwet'en Nation and Coastal Gaslink is one of them um so at Wet'suwet'en Checkpoint is a good page to follow on Instagram awesome um I can link you to that too um as well as Tiny House Warriors um they're battling against the TMX pipeline um but yeah all, all those like folks who are like really like kind of living on their lands and and fighting against um, resource, reckless resource extraction. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of links in this episode if you guys haven't <laughs> checked so the links already. so many topics. <laughs> it's a lot. I'm surprised we even got through, like, pretty know, much all of them. It's been, like, just a little over an hour. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> you got yeah, to stay on track, too. too. Me too. <laughs> but before I let you go, links, where can we find you? Um, my Instagram is at alaylay, so a-Y-L-A-Y-L-A-Y underscore. I am currently <laughs> shadow banned, unfortunately. Oh. Classic. Um, yep. So if you start searching me in like the, the search bar, you'll have to type in my whole handles in order for it to come up. Um, you can also try typing links chase because um, mm-hmm. that's like the name in my like, not my handle, but the like, you know, whatever. In the, the, bio. the bio part. Yeah. Um, but again, you'd, you'd have to probably type the whole thing in because I'm shadow banned. Um, and my OnlyFans too. So OnlyFans.com slash links chase. Um, that's where I put all my non-censored content up. So if you're looking for some smut, definitely <laughs> subscribe. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. I am so glad and honored for you to be in the show today and to spread all this wonderful education and all the resources and knowledge that you have. Thank you. Topic. So, Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate yes. it. <laughs> Thank you. And don't forget, new episodes every Sunday is stripped by Sia for my uh, personal CS stuff and we'll catch you guys in for another episode next week. Bye! You're listening to Strip by Sia hosted, produced, and edited by Steph Sia artwork by Maria Bellandorama music by Ted D and photography by Ian Dabern.